But this week, we um, finish up, really, Paul's argument concerning the, the, the balance between legalism and license. As we reflected, uh, really beginning chapter 6, but chapter 8 in earnest, uh, we've seen uh, Paul trying to deal with these, these two very different communities within the church at Corinth. Uh, one community believing that uh, it's appropriate and necessary to abstain from all things, to, to try and remove ourselves as much from activities that uh, might in any way, shape, or form characterize, uh, be characterized as sin. We, we need to uh, remove any kind of, of, of action that, that might lead us down that road or that might mischaracterize uh, the righteousness that we have. And on the other side, you have the people who are, who are arguing, well, you know, I can, I can do anything. As a believer, as a Christian, I can. Uh, I have great freedom in Christ. Uh, I have been saved by his grace. I have been liberated to, to live a life that uh, is not constrained by these religions and these rules that so often uh, shaped people and, and so often uh, caused anger and hatred between different peoples. And, and so Paul is, is trying to address those, those two viewpoints, those who, who say, man, we have to follow all the rules, and those who say we don't have to follow any of the rules. And, and we've noticed his, his argumentation as we've gone along. Um, we, we've noticed several truths that, that he's presented. We've, we've talked about how it's founded in accountability, that Paul's disposition and, and his position about the decisions we make, the, the commitments we make, the, the things we're willing to take part in or not take part in, uh, must be grounded, first of all, in accountability. You are responsible to me. I am responsible to you. Uh, as people who are part of the body of Christ, people who are connected, uh, we, by nature, have to have some level of influence on each other. And if that influence is there, then we want that influence to be the proper kind of influence, an influence that points us toward uh, Jesus. Uh, along those same lines, uh, Paul argues that we're always working toward unity, that unity is our goal uh, as believers, we want to be of one mind. We want to present a, a, uh, a solid, concerted front to the world. The world needs to see that those who are in Christ are different. And not only are they different, they're different in the oneness that they share. Uh, that while we may have different ways of expressing ourselves, we may, we may have different ways of dressing, different ways of, of, of living out our lives, different activities that we participate in, that we are of one mind when it comes to Christ and, and who he is. He then highlighted and emphasized that love must uh, mitigate and, and determine our decision, um, that it, it's, it's an otherness-centered reality that, that motivates us. Uh, and then he highlighted uh, the reliance on the Lord and the priority of the gospel, that the gospel is at the center of every decision we make, every uh, circumstance that we uh, undertake. So as we come to chapter 10, we, we basically find Paul making his final argument. We, we, we find him um, in some ways returning to things he's already said. In fact, uh, some of the, the passages here um, uh, that you read in chapter 10, we've already read back in chapter 6, chapter 8, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. He repeats that, that whole line of reasoning here uh, in chapter 10 again. Um, and, and he seems to basically just be saying in this passage, okay, have you heard me? 
have you heard me? Um, one of the one of the, the the struggles that all communicators have, it's a struggle I have as well, is making sure we're heard, making sure we're understood. Um, sometimes that's that's on us. We don't express ourselves as clearly as we ought to, um, especially with, with somebody like me who likes to kind of jump around in my head. I, I, I promise y'all, I jump around a lot more in my head than I do with y'all. So um, that might be a scary thought for some of you, but um, <laughs> um, but I, I've been amazed, you know, as a professor and as a pastor over the years, all the things that I have supposedly said that never came out of my mouth. You know, I'll, I'll hear people talk, well, Dr. Pierce holds this view, or Dr. Pierce believes this, or Dr. Pierce said that. And, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm like, I, I don't think I said anything even remotely close to that. You know, it, it, it's a struggle that we have, you know, because there's the things that I intend to say versus the things that I actually say. Uh, there's the, 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 the whole uh, movement of the sounds between my mouth and your ears. You know, um, we, we had a little bit of fun in uh, Sunday school this morning because Christy said something, and it was very clear and very cogent and very appropriate, and I completely did not hear a thing. It just did not click what she had said. Sitting right next to me, and, and I was struggling. We were, we, were that, we were that couple for that moment where she's saying something, and he's totally not understanding what she's saying. Um, you know, there, there's that, that whole that whole dimension there, and, and then once it hits your ears, are you interpreting it the way I intended to interpret it? So communication's a, a difficult time, and so we can't really blame Paul here in chapter 10 for coming back to ideas he's already expressed and saying, okay, one more time. Once more, let's cover these issues. Let's deal with some of these matters and, and, and see if I can find a, the balance. If I can use one more illustration, if I can use one more expression, one more warning, one more uh, encouragement to you to, to find that balance between legalism and license. And he starts here in chapter 10 by, by reflecting upon Israel's past. He tells a story. Uh, he, he brings up uh, the narrative of Israel's uh, wanderings in the wilderness. And he says during that time in the wilderness, during that, during that time where they're following around Moses and and they're experienced in the cloud, and they, they've encountered the, the, the parting of the sea, and you know they're all eating the same spiritual food. He's talking about the manna there, using it as a, as a type there in, in verse 3 is where I'm at. And they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And he's using this, this allegory here to, to paint this picture that, that Israel was all, they were all the recipient of the same spiritual truth. Every one of them, the, the, the thousands of people that were there in the wilderness, they all encountered Moses. They all saw God in his glory in the cloud. They all saw the sea part. They all stood at the base of Sinai and heard God speak to them. They all heard Moses read the Ten Commandments to them. They all had a, a, a part in in the golden calf incident and the judgment that followed on that. They all went through those same experiences. They, they, they were all present there to see God move in amazing and wonderful and incredible ways, ways that just blow the mind. 
Okay. I, I've often said that that when I get to heaven and, and and I get that I get that DVR player, you know, where you can pull up any moment in history and, and watch it. Okay. I want to I want to see Exodus nineteen. I, I just want to see that whole series of events there with the with the the, the the trumpets coming in and the lightning and the flashing and Moses standing on the mountain screaming up at the mountain and the mountain screaming back at him and and that whole exchange and God utterly ultimately saying to Israel all the earth is mine and you're my special possession it's just such a dramatic wonderful overwhelming moment in the biblical narrative in the story of God's salvation and the story of of, of God's interaction with his people. And they were all there. They all enjoyed his benefits and his blessings. And yet what? So many of them were so very disobedient. So many of them um, turned away. Just don't become idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat, to drink, and they got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in the single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. They were written for our instruction, and they were um, uh, on whom the end of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. As we sit here this morning, we sit here, most of us, with a testimony of what Jesus Christ can do in life. We've met Jesus. We've read the stories, we've, we, we've seen the power of Christ in our lives, we've seen lives changed, we've seen people healed, we've seen people come through trials and, and tribulations that, that no normal circumstance, no normal situation could explain. It has to be the presence of God in their life to see them through that. And we've experienced God's presence in worship We've sung his praises. We've been moved with great emotion. And we've been challenged by his word numerous times by, by various speakers. Myself and, and others in our lives have, have challenged us with God's word and, and spoken with clarity to our hearts and to our minds. We know what the power of Christ is. And yet we fall. And yet we fail. And Paul's basic supposition here is that the, the reason that we fall, the reason that we fail, is because of pride. And he says that there in verse 12, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Embedded in that warning is this, this mindset, this reality that failure is just one decision away. One faulty commitment 
away. Too often we as, as Christians fall into the trap of, of you know, the, the self-help mindset. You can do it. You can accomplish it. Preachers have become how-to gurus instead of proclaimers of the word. And Paul warns us against that mindset and that perspective here. And in verse 13, he, he says something that is probably one of the more misunderstood, misapplied texts in all Scripture. It says, No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. We often hear that verse summarized or encapsulated with the sentence, God will not give you more than you can handle. That's not what the passage is saying. That's not the encouragement that Paul is trying to issue forth here. Paul is warning about sin. He's warning about the temptation for sin, and, he, and he's essentially saying to the church at Corinth and to us by extension that the circumstances that tempt us to sin are no different than they've ever been. When he says there's no temptation befallen you that's not common to humanity, what he's saying is every generation struggles with the temptation to sin. I know we look at our situation and our circumstance and we say, man, it's worse than it's ever been. And perhaps in some ways it is. But the reality of sin is, is that since the fall, it has always grabbed humanity's attention. It has always pulled at our hearts. It has always drawn us in its direction. It has, in some ways, the upper hand in terms of our decision-making process because as Paul says, we are slaves to sin before Christ. And so Paul here is saying, understand, the temptation you're facing is nothing new. It's nothing new. Sometimes we feel like, well, no person's ever been tempted like I've been tempted. No person's ever gone through what I've gone through. And Paul's saying, if that's your perception, you totally misunderstand the nature of sin. But he goes on to say what? You don't have to surrender to that sin. You don't have to give in that sin. God has provided a way out. God has provided a way away from that. And again, in the context here of, of, of those people who, who are, are experiencing the, the, the freedom and who are experiencing the, the, the mindset and the perspective that I can do anything, he's saying, don't get cocky. Stay close to the cross. Stay close to God. He has 
provided you, and he continues to provide you a way out of that sin. He has empowered you to overcome. You are not a person who can make excuses, well, I'm only human. Because in Christ, you're more than conquerors. In Christ, you're more than the sum total of your your fallen status and your and your your situation, your circumstance that, that drives you towards sin. In Christ, you have the power to say no to sin. And he calls us to that behavior. Then as he continues in verse 14, he says, So then, in other words, I've said all this to say this, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not shared in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than you? He's calling the people here. He's challenging the people here to distinctive lives. He's saying righteousness has no partnership, no connection with unrighteousness. False worship has no connection with true worship. What was going on here was, was people were taking the, the celebration meal, the, 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 the Last Supper, the, the Lord's Supper, and, and they were turning it into a, a lascivious feast. Now, you need to understand that, that there was a shift in Christianity um, somewhere in the Middle Ages in terms of how the Lord's Supper was celebrated. And I'm not talking about the whole transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the different views there. I'm talking about where the focus was. Initially, the Lord's Supper, its focus was a celebration of the resurrection. It was acknowledgement of the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken, but the, the primary focus was on the fact that Christ had conquered death. And so that's why you read quite often in Acts and in some of Paul's letters and so forth about this love feast. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that the Lord's Supper, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, culminated with this great feast, this great meal that the church took part in together to celebrate the, the, the coming banquet in heaven, the, the coming meeting with God there. Now along the way, as it, as it became more ritualized and more practiced, we lost that aspect of it, and we now simply focus upon the body and the blood. Hopefully still recognizing and acknowledging the resurrection, but we don't go into 
the, the whole feast part of it. But what had happened in Corinth is they, they had taken that feast and they would taken that, that festival that, that was a part of their participation, part of their activity, and they had added pagan elements to it. They brought in elements from their past lives and from their past religious experience into that. Paul's saying, you've gone too far in that. Celebration, the freedom that we have in Christ is true. It's real. It's, it's apparent. It's necessary. But you've gone too far when you've started to bring in these pagan ideas. You've corrupted the image. The people are confused. When they see Christians celebrating and they see them celebrating with some of these elements from paganism, they're confused. What exactly is going on there? What exactly are they doing there? And so Paul's warning against that. And he's saying, be mindful of even the very meals you eat. And this is where he jumps in, once again, returning to that idea, everything is permissible. And again, remember, as we noted last time, notice that's in quotes. Paul is quoting somebody else there. He's quoting the believers there in Corinth. Then his own statement, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, they say, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, if any of the unbelievers invite you over and they want you to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, Wait a minute, this food is from a sacrifice. Do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So in this discussion of meat sacrifice to idols, he, he returns to these, these principles. He says, first of all, he says, Feel free to eat it. Feel free to eat the food that's there in the marketplace. Feel free to, to eat at an unbeliever's house if they invited you over. Don't raise the issue. Don't raise the question. Why? <clears throat> because as he says in Romans 14, 14, no food is unclean unto itself. Food is just food. Okay? It's just food. It's not unclean unto itself. So, so feel free. But if someone raises the issue, then for their sake, it's necessary, it's proper, it's appropriate to refrain. He says there in verses 29 through 30 to, to recognize the freedom we have. Don't be paranoid. Christianity was not meant to be a religion lived 
carefully. It was meant to be a religion or a faith relationship. Live clearly. Live compassionately. Live with conviction, but not carefully. We're not to walk around as if on eggshells. Oh, who might I offend with this? Or what might be the, the outcome of this? <coughs> Recognize the power you have in Christ. Recognize the freedom you have in Christ. Recognize the life you have in Christ. I came to have to give you life and give it to you more abundantly, Christ said. How can we live an abundant life if we're constantly walking around on eggshells worried about this rule or that rule or that thing or this thing or whatever? Paul says, live with boldness, live with clarity, live with faith. So what does it all come down to? I think Paul gives us that answer there in verse 31 and verse 1 of chapter 11. It comes down to why are you doing what you're doing? In the decisions you make, what you do participate in or what you don't participate in. Why are you doing what you're doing? You need to recognize that you're free you also need to be conscious of and tolerant of other people's views. Recognizing that ultimately it's God that we seek to please. With that in mind, where is God's emphasis? What would God have us emphasize in the decisions we I think if we look through the Gospels and we look through Paul's instructions and through the rest of the New Testament, God's emphasis is always the salvation of mankind. Seeing people brought to back to that relationship that we enjoyed before the fall. Seeing people renewed and restored, refreshed, transformed by the Spirit of God. I think if you were in a situation, and I think I, I believe I'm taking this straight from Paul's instructions here, that if you were in a situation where you had a, a non-believer's invitation and you had a, a, a fellow believer who's who's struggling with that, saying you really shouldn't participate in that, I think Paul would say, side with the non-Christian every day. It leads somebody to Christ. I become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. If it leads somebody to Christ, if it if it accurately, appropriately demonstrates to them what it means to be a believer, and it helps them to see that you love them and that you are you are you're with them and that you're walking with them and that you're 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 you understand their journey. long as you're not succumbing to sin yourself, walk that path. Love those people. Too often, 
We set up barriers that God never intended to be set up. We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to ask what our motives are. If you're one of those who leans toward the freedom, ask yourself, is it really about the lost or is it about me that's causing me to behave this way? If you're one of those who leans more in the, the more restrained direction, ask yourself, what am I doing or saying that might be getting in the way of people coming to Christ? Am I misrepresenting Jesus and the rules that I've established? Barriers that I've built? Are our constraints and our freedom God-made or man-made? The only way you can truly grow in that knowledge is to what? to walk with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, worship in Bible study, in prayer, in sharing him with the community around you. That's where you begin to see where those principles actually function and, and where those decisions are actually made. I think too often we, we struggle with or we start setting up scenarios of, of action or inaction because we simply don't know what it means to actually interact with a lost person. We don't do it. We don't share our faith. We don't reach out to people. We don't connect with people. We live in our, as some preachers put it, our holy huddle. And so we have no idea how to live a life that expresses freedom or, or whatever because we're not seeing that experience outside the context of, of just our own community, just our own fellow believers. So we end up weighing ourselves against them instead of communicating God's grace and goodness to a people who so desperately need that. Folks, our time is short. Whether you believe Christ's return is imminent or, or it's just a matter of situations of life in this world and the freedoms that we have are, are, are fading away. Whichever one it is, it doesn't really matter. Our time is short. We have a window within which we can share our faith with those that God has brought into our life. If we're not taking advantage of that. If we're not speaking up, if we're not reaching out, if we're not connecting, then we're failing in Paul's final instruction there, imitate me as I'll imitate Christ. God has called us to be salt and light. Taking that responsibility seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we look at our lives, as we look at our motivations, as we look at our activities, the things that we participate in or the things that we refrain from, 
God, may our questions always be centered in pleasing you, seeing the lost come to salvation. Lord, help us to be a people who are more than just a group that meets together on Sundays and Wednesdays. Help us to be a people that are infiltrating a world that is opposed to you, that desperately needs to know you. Lord, help us to be serious, to get serious about sharing our faith. Step away from the fears, constraints that have too often gotten priority instead of your word. Lord, help us to do that with love. The love that surprises people. A love that overwhelms people. A love that can only come from you. Lord, use this time to help us to evaluate where we stand and where we are and the things you've called us to. Help us to be responsive as you lead and direct. In Christ's name I pray.